This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Karen Keough, a board-certified and fellowship-trained pediatrician and child neurologist in Austin, Texas. Dr. Keough, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Before we jump into the questions, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? So I've been practicing here in Austin since 2006, and I graduated from medical school back in 1993. And I was on an Air Force scholarship in medical school and came to Texas for my pediatrics residency. And if anyone had told me then that I would still be living in Texas in 2021, I would have said, there's no way that will happen. (laughs) That wasn't the plan um, from the East Coast, but I've settled here and have lived here um, pretty much continuously in Texas since 1993, just through a series of different steps in my training. And I started in pediatrics and then did additional training in child neurology. And then after a few years, did an additional fellowship in Houston in epilepsy. And really that's the focus of my practice now is treating patients with severe epilepsy and and other kinds of related neurologic problems. I work in a private practice here in Austin. That's fascinating. And I'm really excited to have you on the podcast and learn a little bit more about your specialty. What are the big issues and trends in pediatric neurology today? So it's a really exciting area, field of study to be a part of that has been just exploding with new information over the past two decades. So um, the last decade, not our current decade, but the prior one was uh, the decade of the brain. And there were just many, many things that were starting to be understood in the field of neurology. And hand-in-hand with that have been huge advances in the world of genetics. So between those two things, better understanding of just the physiology of how the brain works and new medications and treatments and new understandings and insights in genetics have opened up treatments for things that we previously thought we really didn't have a lot of impact. Um, We we could identify disease processes, but not really change them very much. And it's really powerful to see those things starting to fall down and and have those barriers removed so that we can really make a big difference in a lot of patients' lives and families. That's fantastic to hear. I'm wondering, what is it like to be the only female in the room when there are big plans that are being made and, and decisions that have to be made? So it's interesting. I would say that this is something that I, day to day and and really over the years of my professional life, I don't necessarily give a lot of thought to it because there have only been a handful of times where I am really mindful of my gender. I don't think about it very much. And I think that's part of why I feel like it never held me back. I I don't think of myself as as being unusual um, in that role. But um, actually, when people ask me about it, I'll say, yeah, that's, that's probably true. It has become increasingly less true over time. So when I entered medical school, which was in 1989, it was the first class at Johns Hopkins Medical School that had more women than men. But that trend has really continued. Um, and actually, in medical school for many years now, there are more women entering medical school than men across the country and lots more women graduating, and many fields in medicine that used to be really the exclusive um, territory of men have become very much gender neutral, and pediatrics in particular was one of the first fields that became 
um, predominantly women entering the field. And it was slower to come to child neurology um, because neurology is a much less common subspecialty that was male majority for a longer period of time than other pediatric subspecialties. But a few years ago, I was at a, a big conference when I was um, first starting up a pediatric residency training program here in Austin. And I went to a conference for the ACGME, which is the American College of Graduate Medical Education. And they had a big luncheon, it was a very big room, you know, well over a thousand people seated at these tables. And I just sat down at a table with people I didn't know because um, I was just kind of sitting down to have lunch. And I was talking to the woman who was sitting next to me and she was a, um, in her last year of residency training, getting ready to go out and start a job as a OBGYN, obstetrics to gynecology specialist. And we were just talking and she says, you know, it's been kind of strange to be at this conference all week because I just can't believe how many men there are here. And I thought, that's a very interesting comment. And I said, you know, it's pretty amazing because I was sitting here thinking exactly the opposite. I can't believe how many women are here. And it just really hit home how much transition there has been over the last 20 years, which was more or less, you know, 20, 25 years probably was the difference between when she was finishing training and when I finished training. And there's really been a shift in medicine um, to have many more women participating. Um, but if you look towards the senior um, sector of, of that workforce, and the more experienced end of that workforce, it is still very much male dominated. And so the leadership roles are very much more commonly filled by men. And if you look at, for example, the Child Neurology Society, which is my professional society, um, the president of that organization has been a man, you know, for the vast majority of years that I can think of. There have been a few women who have gotten to that position um, as the president of the CNS, but not many. Um, so it's still filtering upward to have more women in those roles. But I think that people who are coming through training now have a huge advantage to be surrounded by other women that really demonstrate, yeah, you can, there's no limit here. You can do whatever you choose to do professionally and those doors will open for you. Um, and that is really in large part because of the women that have come before that have broken down a lot of those barriers. So I would say that although I don't think it has held me back very much, I do occasionally have experiences interacting with people where I think, I think that what just happened there would not have happened if I were a man. Um, and that when, when, when I do experience that, um, I just kind of make a point of moving forward and saying, well, I, I got through that. I, I can do this anyway. I can do anything that I set out to do and kind of show the way that, that it doesn't need to be a man in that position. That's great to hear in terms of, you know, the field evolving to have more women and include more women um, and know that, you know, you're able to be confident in what you're doing and passing that on to other female physicians as well. That's great to hear. I'm wondering, you know, how are you thinking about career growth and development in the coming years? Obviously, you've already had a great career and, and really been able to do many things. What's next for you? So my day-to-day -day life is, you know, very strongly 
consumed by um, patient care, direct patient care. I really enjoy the clinical work that I've done um, more than I enjoy a lot of other things. So I've had uh, different roles in academic medicine. I've done some different kinds of research roles, but it really brings me back to taking care of patients. Um, and that's become the focus of my practice, and I intend to continue to do that. Um, but it's relatively easy to kind of get caught up in that day-to-day, -day, and there are opportunities that arise to continue to be a force for advancement in a clinical role, not necessarily in um, a traditional academic environment per se, but in other um, capacities where you are modeling physician leadership. So, for example, I just recently joined the um, board as a member at large for the Texas Neurology Society. So that's an educational professional society in our state. Um, they do graduate medical, medical education. They do political and medical advocacy for patients as well as for practicing physicians. And participating actively in those kinds of positions are ways that you can leverage your clinical experience and all of those years of work in um, a way that will have a positive impact for people coming behind you. And um, so that's something that I want to continue to integrate into my professional role and do that while I kind of choose priorities in terms of how to um, spend my limited time <laughs> and looking ahead towards, at some point, backing down to a little bit less of a busy day-to-day -day life. That makes sense and, and really leads into my next question as well. What are your top three pieces of advice for women aspiring to be clinical leaders, especially those that might be looking into more male-dominated specialties? So I think one thought is to really seek out a strong mentor to help you overcome barriers that might be in place and kind of akin to that to find environments where there is a fostering um, philosophy that gender isn't an issue in what opportunities arise in that um, training area or in that professional group. Um, and that doesn't mean necessarily shutting out opportunities that are better or stronger, it means finding a, a place where you can thrive and flourish and be supported in what your goals are, you know, to, to look for those opportunities. Um, so I think it matters a lot in looking for training positions in residency, in fellowship, and looking for a place to practice where there are other women who have worked there and, and feel supported by um, their colleagues and by the institution that they're working for, um, because that's going to be um, a place that has less inherent resistance to what your goals are. And note that I'm not saying that you should necessarily lower your expectations. I don't mean that at all. These, these, can, these types of environments can absolutely be very high achieving and competitive locations, but you know, different institutions have different um, environmental kind of factors that make it more pleasant or harder for, for you to, to do your work there. So finding a, a strong mentor, I think, is very worthwhile. Um, 
I think that understanding your own professional priorities is really important and what your goals are in terms of finding that right balance for work demands and what other things you want to do in your life in terms of um, raising a family, um, what kind of um, additional responsibilities you want to take on versus you don't want to take on. So, um, for example, for me, I really wanted to, to come to a place that was going to be more clinically focused where my interest in clinical work would be appreciated and rewarded. And that made it easier for me to choose um, to come up here to Austin. And I chose that location over um, some other cities that would have had a lot more demand for um, publish or perish kind of environment. That's not what I wanted. It's There are certainly lots of women out there who would seek out an environment like that. I'm not saying that that choice for me is the right choice for everyone. It's what I was looking for. Well, fantastic. Dr. Keogh, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate our discussion and I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Oh, at any time, I'd be happy to speak with you again and thank you for the invitation.